What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Caruso. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about strangers with candy. And I'll be talking about Fatty Arbuckle. I am so excited. Oh, it's It's theme. It's a theme. (laughs) There's a a theme! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this was a close one. We had the people on Patreon vote between ongoing cases and old-timey cases. Or on... Going cases. Uh, yeah, Brandy had a typo, and it turns out once one person votes, you can't, you can't correct change. the typo. So ongoing is now two words. two words. That's correct. This was our closest vote yet. By far. If you are wondering how you could have voted on this topic, Kristen's going to tell you how. Here's the thing. For just $2 a month, that makes you a district court judge in our Patreon, and you get to vote on topics, you get episode updates. For $5 a month, you get all that, plus you get access to the Discord and our bonus episodes, which we just had a new one come out. That's right. What did we talk about, Brandy? You guys, I can't tell you what we talked about, (laughs) but what I can tell you is that Kristen and I came with the same fucking case. It was horrible. It's never (laughs) happened to us before. We discovered it two and a half hours before we were That's supposed to right. record. So I was like, <laughs> I anyway, believe I can fly. I, think, I believe that it's worth being a patron just to hear that shit go down. <laughs> it was a classic mix-up. Classic, classic blunder. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to hear me panic and um, hear the case that I threw together in two and a half hours, uh, you can only it's do really it on good. Patreon. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I was so watching uh, a baseball game mm-hmm. and Kristen walked in and it looked like she had like pooped on the floor. <laughs> she looked so like distraught and ashamed. She's like, never guess what just happened. Didn't even have a Bed Bath & Beyond bag to shit in. That's how dire these circumstances were. Oh, we do have a big announcement. And um, this is kind of exciting because really, thanks to Patreon, we finally have money. Oh, I'm just going to say, and I'm learning about this announcement just yeah, like you, you are. You no, I do. So I know about it. I had no idea what you're talking about. No, so we finally actually have some money. Thank you to you fine patrons. And we would like to hire someone to edit our episodes. Yes. Uh, but not just anyone. We are looking yeah, yeah. for <laughs> someone with experience, someone who thinks we're hilarious <laughs> and beautiful and no, I'm just kidding. You must think we're super hot. You must hot. think we're smart. You must think we're funny. 
No, we are looking for an experienced yes. audio editor. We are looking for someone who has listened to the podcast so they know the style. And we're looking for someone who can send us their resume and a cover letter and some audio samples to lgtcpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to learn more about it, you can read the job description on our website, lgtcpodcast.com. <laughs> And Peanut wants your help, too. I don't know if you heard her bark, but... But I'd really like to take a load off my shoulders, That's folks. right. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, please head on over to our website and then send us your resume and some samples of your work to lgtcpodcast at gmail.com. You're going to make big money, baby. Wow. Don't oversell it, Norm. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, but we will pay a fair rate. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, Brandy, I'm I, so excited yes, for yours. Yes, I am ready. So first of all, right off the top, I have to say thank you to my papa, Tim, my dad. <laughs> Are we using old-timey lingo? I, I call him papa when I want to get his attention. <laughs> He's like, oh my God, yeah, shut when up. I'm like, so dad, rude. dad, and he doesn't pay attention. I'm like, papa. <laughs> so thank you to my dad who recommended this case for me. I knew like a little bit about it and I think I knew the same little bit about it that everybody knows Mm -hmm. and it's not even fucking true. Let's hear the truth, Brandy. Oh, let me. What's happening, Kristen? I'm sorry. I want to adjust my mic again. Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) We're professionals, damn it. Norm, how'd that sound? Yeah, it's going to have to be cut. (laughs) Big rumble. Big rumble. Okay. Next, thank you to Denise No. Oh my God. For the crime library. She is my friend and Killing she doesn't it know every it. Time. Yeah, she brings me the greatest the greatest source articles. And then also Gilbert King for the Smithsonian. All right. Do you know who Fatty Arbuckle is? Not really. I mean I've heard the name. Yeah, so he's a silent silent film actor, was like Right up there with Charlie Chaplin in okay. the early 1900s. Actually, and we'll learn this, had like the one of the biggest movie deals in history when suddenly Adobe Flash, I'm sorry, what are you doing? <laughs> Adobe Flash intervened? Yes! <laughs> I would not have guessed that they were what around. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, when Scandal and... Well, we'll see what happens. Okay, Just kind okay. of derailed his life. Okay. Roscoe Arbuckle, as he was born, was born. He wasn't named he Fatty. He was not named Fatty. <laughs> he was born March 24th, 1887 in Smith Center, Kansas. Oh. It's like, think like North Central Kansas near Concordia. Okay. Which is funny. My So I just looked this up because I wasn't sure where Smith Center was. And my dad's family is from Cortland, Kansas, which is this little tiny town. The towns are 50 miles apart. Wow. Smith Center and Cortland. Okay. So anyway, so he was born there. Um, and he always joked about how that was like a, a tiny, tiny town. And he said two things blew it right off the map. A tornado and his birth. <laughs> Um, he was a gigantic baby. Um, like how big? 13 pounds, 14 pounds, oh 16 pounds, uh-huh. depending on what source you look at. Could we pause here? Yes. And Norman, would you tell your story about being a big baby? Norman and I are both big babies. Yeah, but Norman holds the I don't record. know if we've talked about this on the podcast. No, we haven't. But yes, I was a big baby. How big? I was 10 pounds. I was, I was also born. 10 pounds. 
10 pounds, three ounces. They called me monster baby. <laughs> All the doctors came to see me. <laughs> I was born in Okinawa, Japan. Uh-huh. And I was... Oh, so you were like a freak, I was a freakishly American. big yeah. baby yeah. Yeah. in that hospital, yes. He was yeah. the fattest baby that had ever been born in that hospital. Yeah. I'm sure it's been broken. I, it's probably because we were both born on the, on June 12th. Yeah. Just 10 yeah. pound babies born on June 12th. Couple of freaks. We are a couple of freaks. It is crazy how much stuff Nora I know. I know. <laughs> You're both wildly in love with me. So, yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> we're both white. <laughs> You love me and you're both white. <laughs> End of list. That's it. So to take a, a note out of your book, Kristen. Okay. This is an old timey case. Oh, oh. And, are you feeling uh, a little... the facts are mm-hmm. sometimes a bit contradictory mm-hmm. in certain articles. Mm-hmm. And so I've done my best to go with the stuff that I felt was most consistent. So I believe he was a 13 pound baby. I am not going to give you any wiggle room on any of this. <laughs> um... He had a terrible family life from the beginning. Hmm. His father was convinced that his wife had had an affair and that he was not the father of young Roscoe because both um, Roscoe, Roscoe's dad and mom were both very thin. And then she delivered this giant baby. And so So he was like, for sure, you fuck somebody else. (laughs) Yeah, but she was like a very conservative religious woman. It is widely believed that she did not have any type well, of yes, affair. Sometimes yes. you just have a you big just baby. Have a big baby. So he named Roscoe after this Republican politician, Roscoe Conkling, who he hated. Oh, yes. As punishment, he named. Roscoe Arbuckle after this politician that he did not like, which what is just like a horrible thing. Yes. Uh, he was a big baby. He was a big kid. He was big his whole life. Right. Um, he was teased as a child because of his size. And he kind of took on the nickname Fatty as a way to like, I'll make fun of myself before right. you can make sure. fun of me. But he hated it. He hated the nickname. As he grew into adulthood, he became famous with that name. But if his friends called him, he was quick to correct them and say, my name's Roscoe. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He was hilarious. He used comedy to, you know, break the ice and deal with, you know, being different than his friends. And he had this beautiful singing voice. It was around the age of eight that he figured out that he was while he was shy and nervous and always kind of on the defensive as himself, he just completely came alive on the stage. Mm. And he was this amazing performer. And despite his size, he was like incredibly limber. And so he could do like acrobatics and stuff. So he would sing, he would do acrobatic acts, he did all kinds of stuff. And he really like thrived in that life. In 1899, when he was 12 years old, his mom died. His mom had had health problems ever since he was born, and his father blamed her death on him. Oh, saying that it was his, his father fault. was an oh, asshole. Oh, absolutely, it was his fault that he had done permanent damage to his mother because just you know coming into the world because he was a fucking thirteen pound baby. But it was also her fault because she was such a whore. That's exactly yeah, right. Great. Yeah. So. Roscoe's father was left to, you know, raise him alone. And so he did he, a bang up job, right? Oh, yeah. He nurtured him. Mm-hmm. And no, 
He abandoned him. He took off. He moved away and left 12-year-old Roscoe to fend for himself. Good Lord. Yeah. So he ended up moving to California. I think they actually moved to California before this happened. I think they only lived in Kansas for a short time. So the family was living in California. He moved to San Jose and took up, like, a, got a job doing, or doing, like, odd jobs around um, a hotel. Okay. Handy J's, if you will. Stop it. <laughs> Norm, right? Handy J's? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And while he was working there, he often sang while he was doing the work around the hotel. And one day somebody heard him, um, like a producer or something, and was like, and like discovered oh him. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And was like, I got to put you in my act. Uh huh. But this guy had this act um, or this show that was like at one of those theaters where they had like the big hook oh. that would pull you off stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Roscoe was. Super nervous to do it, but he decided he was going to debut his like his fatty Arbuckle character. He was going to go. He sang. The audience really enjoyed the singing, but then it kind of, you know, died down a little bit, the enthusiasm. And so the hook came out for him. And so he did like these pratfalls and he like flipped out of the way of the Uh hook and he flipped off of the stage and the crowd loved it. Yes. And from then on, he was like a staple in the theater scene. He traveled around the world. He went to Japan um, with a traveling theater company. He performed all over in these like comedic acts. He did like, he had this one act where he could throw two pies in two different people's faces, like in opposite directions. Like, Oh my gosh. People loved him. He performed for Sid Grauman. Who's that? Grauman's Chinese Theater. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and got on like with a company that he owned. He was doing great. And he he was loving it. He loved traveling the world doing this. At one point they during when he was tra- doing this like traveling company, they pr- went to this place called the Last Chance Saloon in Montana. And there was this woman who performed there every night. Well, one night when they were there, she was so drunk that she couldn't go on stage. And the people were pissed. Like, the people who had showed up to watch the show right. were pissed. And so Fatty Arbuckle tried to go on stage in her place. And people were like, no, not having it. <laughs> they were mad. So he had this idea where he ran off stage. He went into her dressing room. And he dressed up in drag, essentially. Uh-huh. And came out and pretended to be a woman singer. He had this beautiful, like, sopranic voice where he could sing. And people loved it. The next night, the place was packed. They wanted this woman back. Um, and so he performed as in drag again as this woman. Only this time, Lily, this woman who's, like, standing act it was, she found out about it. She was pissed, and she came out, and she pulled the wig off his head in the middle of the act. And so he, like, went running through the crowd. Like, they're pushing tables over, and everybody thought it was just part of the, like, a big, like, rehearsed thing. Everybody loved it, except for Lily. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm sure Lily was pissed. I'm taking my my fucking show back, thank you. And so they had to move on out of there. Yeah, but... Roscoe was doing exactly what he loved. He loved to perform. He loved to make people laugh. Around 1909, he was back in California, no longer doing um, like the traveling thing. And he got cast in a movie. At this time, movies were really new. And 
actors were seen as like vagrants. Mm -hmm. Lots of hotels and restaurants had signs up about renting to to actors (laughs) and stuff like that. So he didn't want to tell anyone that he'd been cast in this movie. He was like embarrassed by it. Stage actors were very prestigious. People performing in the silent films, not at all. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Why is that? I don't know. Is it because it was is. just new? Yeah, I think it was just weird. new. And yeah, Sta- so stage actors were like the thing. People right. loved them. People, you know, traveled to see stage actors. But but um, movie actors were not respectable and even seen as like yeah, like less than. So he was super embarrassed. He didn't tell anybody that he that he did it. But it it went well for him and mm-hmm. he started a career in silent films. What's important to I think mention about him is that while he used his size as kind of like his shtick, he would never do like jokes about it specifically. Like he wouldn't do the like caught in a doorway joke and stuff like that. Right. And he also was very meticulous about his appearance. He always was very put together, always wore a suit, very clean. He would not, like, joke to, like, the fat slob kind of stereotype. He would not lower himself to that. Around this same time when he's, like, doing his movie career starting, he meets this woman, a singer, named Minta Durfee. And they start a relationship um and it is it's great they did they get married he calls her minty as like her little pet name on their wedding night at their wedding reception roscoe's friends start teasing him about how minta is so petite Mm -hmm. and how he's so large and he's um, gonna crush her yeah how the hell you gonna how how you how you gonna have sex with her without crushing her and they're like just like like jeering him and just like Making fun of him so much so that that night when they're alone for the first time, like as a married couple, Roscoe couldn't consummate the marriage. He was too nervous. He couldn't stop thinking about what everyone had said. He said, Minty, I'm sorry, I can't. He had he was not a virgin. He had had one sexual encounter before, but he just all he could think of was what those people had said to him. And so. He had anxiety. Yeah. So that night, the two just like laid in bed and held each other. And um, it was like a couple of weeks before he had the confidence to consummate his marriage. I just think that this is like, this just tells you so much about him. And it's going to become important later in this story. Okay. Eventually, he joins up with another traveling company. He joins um when he gets so that one takes him to japan and china he does these shows and then he comes back and he joins mac senate's studio which was called keystone this is very this was a very famous group and they had several short films about the keystone cops these are those like funny shtick silent comedies if you saw a picture of it, you'd recognize that they have like the funny cop uniforms on yeah, and, and like, like they're pew, all pew, yeah, pew. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. So he did several several single reels, and that's just like a short film, I believe, and that's how they refer to him, single yeah. reels with them. And then he just keeps growing. He keeps getting more and more famous. He starts his own little company, and he discovers Buster Keaton, who becomes a huge comedian. And Fatty Arbuckle is the one who discovered him. Eventually... 
Roscoe's company grows so big and his fame grows so big that Paramount wants him to sign an exclusivity contract with them. Sure. And so he gives his company to Buster Keaton because Buster helped him grow it. And so like he's like, yes, that's fine. And he signs this unprecedented deal with Paramount. It's like 1917 and he signs a three year, three million dollar oh! deal. Adjust that for inflation, please. $38 million. Whoa. Yeah. That is incredible. But on the deal, he has to put out 21 movies in three years. Oh. Yeah. That seems like a lot. Yeah. So he's just like cranking out these movies and he feels like the quality has really gone down. Yeah. They're not as good. They're not up to his standards. But among them are a couple that, that do well and that I think that... Like if people who are into this kind of thing would recognize the names of today. I didn't recognize any of them um, other than Brewster's Millions. That's the one that I recognize the name of. But well, I the can't other tell one you. was Look Who's Talking Too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like 1921. He is going to have to go to San Francisco to film a larger feature film. And his director and friend, or a director and his friend, this guy Fred Fishbach, is like, hey, it's Labor Day weekend. Let's head out to San Francisco. Let's just take some time off. Let's party for the weekend. Right. He's like, okay. Yeah, I'm down. Like, let's do that. Prohibition is in full swing at this time, but they're going to, like... Uh, Fred tells him he's got a hookup in San Francisco. They're going to have booze. There's going to be ladies. There's going to be friends. Love music. The Victrola will be cranked. You know, whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I picture is, have you seen The Great Gatsby, the one with Leonardo DiCaprio? No. Okay. Yes. Okay. So you know when they go to the city for the afternoon and they have that party in the in the hotel room? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I'm picturing. So they go to the St. Francis Hotel hotel in san francisco which is still there today hang on if you look up st francis um san francisco it will come up it's oh, now it's a, a westin. westin yeah it's now a westin Ooh, man that lobby is it's a westin wanky yeah. it's now a westin yeah. sold out man yeah <laughs> sold out. <laughs> so they rent like three adjoining rooms as they're getting ready to leave for this trip, though, Roscoe has, like, this fancy car. Remember, mm-hmm. it's, like, 1920, 1921. So, like, cars are still, you know, kind of in their infancy, whatever. He's yeah. got this very fancy car. He takes it to get worked on. And while it's getting worked on, he, like, sits down on a stool inside the mechanic shop. And he sits on an acid-soaked rag. <gasps> and he gets second-degree burns, like, all over his Who butt. Who leaves an acid-soaked rag on a I don't know. So he tries to cancel the trip. Well, yeah. And he, Fred's like, no, no, no. I've already got this whole thing set up. You are going. You're not getting out of this. He acid burned his yeah, butthole. He's like, I don't know if I can. I don't think it got to the hole. <laughs> you don't know that it didn't get to the I hole. I guess I don't know that it didn't get to the hole. We, but You can't confirm. <laughs> so he's like. No, we are doing this. You are coming. And he's like, I can't sit for very long. Yeah. And he's like, too bad. We are doing this. And he's like, okay, fine. So they get to the St. Francis. They have the three rooms ready. It's going to be a great, fun, relaxing Labor Day weekend off. Or would it be? Maybe Mm -hmm. that acid rag was sent by God. Maybe it was. 
Don't you hate that friend that is uh, does the peer pressure thing? Yes. Come on, we're doing this, man. Yeah. I have had so many friends who are like, Kristen, I don't care that you sat on that acid-soaked ride. <laughs> the decision to give in to his friend's peer pressure would impact the rest of his life. Because mm-hmm. had he not been in that hotel, had he not been at that party, the trajectory of his future would have been so different. Mm. It's September 5th, 1921, Labor Day. Roscoe wakes up. It's like late morning, maybe early afternoon. He's got his pajamas on. He's walking around his hotel room. It's been just like a weekend of people just in and out, whatever. And he sees that there are a bunch of people there in the hotel room earlier than he would like them to be like it's like the party's not really started yet can you come back later i'm still in my pajamas yeah and then specifically there's a couple of women there that he doesn't love the idea of them being there one of them is um a woman that he's known for years he's worked with on and off but she has a bit of a reputation in the business of being promiscuous, um, things like that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the other one has this horrible reputation of blackmailing men. Oh. Yes. And has actually been charged with it before. Oh, and, shit. Yes. Okay. Yes. So he's like. Because I was going to say mm. the promiscuous stuff. I'm sure there were a bunch of horny ass dudes who were oh, absolutely. too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Worth noting at this point. So as his fame grew, he started drinking a lot and his um, relationship with Minta really went downhill. At this point, they were separated, but not yet divorced, I believe. He doesn't love that um, these two women are there. He doesn't love that anybody's there at all. This one woman is known as as a madam and a blackmailer. Madam as in like brothel? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lady of the night. A lady of the night. And so... He's not into it. Okay. But time goes by. More people show up. Things are going okay. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon by this point. Oh, God. This and, did start too oh, early. Oh, yeah. It started way too early. Um, and a friend, a female friend that had been staying in one of the rooms is like, hey, I need a ride to blah, blah, blah. And so Roscoe's like, no problem. I'll... I'll take you home. So he goes into his room to change his clothes. And he had his own like private room. Like one of the rooms was reserved for him. One of the rooms was reserved for Fred. And then one was just kind of like the party room. Right. So it was like a suite. Yeah. Except it was three separate rooms. But whatever. They were all conjoined. Right. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go and change my clothes and then I'll take you. So he goes into the room. He closes his door. And then he goes to go into his bathroom in his room. And there is one of the women, um, the one that he knows well. Her name is Virginia Rep. Um, he's worked with her on and off um, multiple times over the years. But she's the one that has kind of the reputation. Okay. Whatever. And she is on the floor of the bathroom vomiting and very sick. Mm-hmm. And so by his account, he picks her up. He takes her to the bed. And then he goes like back into the bathroom and kind of cleans it up a little bit, changes his clothes. He comes out. She's no longer on the bed. She's now on the floor. And she's like writhing in pain. At some point, her friend, Maude Delmont, who is the woman who's kind of who is known as the the briber and the madam, she 
according to her, mm-hmm. comes and pounds on the door because she hears Virginia in distress right. inside the room. And she hears Virginia screaming. And she busts in the door and she sees Fatty Arbuckle on top of Virginia raping her. Mm. That's one version. Okay. In Roscoe Arbuckle's version, she he picks her up off the floor. He picks Virginia up off the floor, puts her back on the bed. She asks for water. She says she's in pain. He opens the door to the bedroom. Several people come in and start tending to her. They end up putting her in the bathtub in like a cold bath. Mm-hmm. And they can't figure out what is going on with her. She has had a ton to drink. Mm-hmm. And so they think that she might be having alcohol poisoning, something like that. Well, and it was probably like bathtub gin, too, Bra- right? Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly, they called it a gin party. So, yeah, I'm sure that it was... Super sketch. Yes. At one point, Virginia starts, like, tearing at her clothes and screaming, and um, she's inconsolable. And Roscoe's done. He's like, I don't want to deal with this. So he actually leaves. Mm-hmm. He leaves, and he gives the, a ride to... Um, the friend who needed the ride and he comes back and they've at this point he when he comes back Virginia is still a mess they've got her in the bed they're icing her whatever they call a doctor finally at some point and a doctor comes and he says uh yeah she's drunk (laughs) and they're like thank you for your professional opinion doctor so the doctor like has her just continue she's like she needs to sleep it off yeah and so they leave her in the bed and the party continues there's more drinking there's dancing there's whatever the doctor comes back to check on her the ho there's like a hotel physician and so like that doctor comes back just to check on her um and he gives her a shot of morphine to -hmm. like get her through whatever is going on whatever pain she's in and hopefully let her just kind of go to sleep and sleep off the I mean, she's just, they believe that she's just very drunk. At that point, the party, like, kind of winds down, whatever. The doctor comes back in the morning to check on her again. And this time, they want to give her more morphine. And her friend that had been there with her is like, hey, she hasn't gone to the bathroom at all. And so they they insert a catheter so that she can urinate. Because they're like... Yeah, that could be causing the source of her pain if she's just not able to urinate. Something might be going on. She might have like a um, a urinary tract infection. She was also rumored to have had several abortions. And so they thought, and probably illegal abortions. So she probably had. Yeah, was it? I mean, I know it became legal. Yeah. Well, but in the 70s, but like, yeah, I wonder. Um, it's going to become. A- a topic later at trial about okay. what she had undergone and how it may have affected her body. Okay. okay. Um, so I, I guess I don't know for sure that they were illegal, but maybe not just like the best medical care and that sure, she may have sure. had scar tissue and whatever. And so they were like, for whatever reason, she's at, she can't urinate and she needs to urinate. Right. She is in this in this hotel room for a couple of days with a doctor just like checking in every now and again and giving her more morphine. Yeah. It's several days later when they finally take her to a hospital and she died in the hospital on Friday, September 9th because her bladder burst. (gasps) Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So she died of acute peritonitis, which is an infection that was caused by the rupturing of her bladder. Good God. And the cause of her bladder rupturing would be what the entire trial would come down to when they charged Fatty Arbuckle with her death. Wow. Yeah. So immediately when she dies, the newspapers print all kind of stories about how she was raped by Fatty Arbuckle. She was raped with a Coke bottle, a champagne bottle. She was crushed to death by him when he attempted to have sex with her. Oh, come on. This is put all over the front of every newspaper before Roscoe has even been arrested or charged with her death. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. Roscoe could not believe what a fall from grace it was. He said, I don't understand it. One minute, I'm the guy everybody loved. The next, I'm the guy everybody loves to hate. So he's arrested, and initially he was charged with first-degree murder. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Later, they bring... So he would have faced the death penalty if they would have. Holy shit! Yeah. How did they get to first-degree murder, though? So because of Maud What's-Her-Butt's story... (laughs) What's her name? Maud Delmont. Maud Delmont immediately went to the police and said, I saw him. I saw him do it. I saw him rape her. He did this to her. Hmm. And so the they arrest him. He actually turns himself in. Sure. And they charge him with first degree murder. Prosecution starts trying to put it together a case. And they realize very quickly that Maud Delmont is not going, they're not going to be able to put her on the witness stand. She's not a reliable witness. Her story changes every time they ask her. Mm. And then they look into her background. She she has a history of um, blackmail. blackmail, And they're like, okay, great. So they drop the charges to, I've totally lost my place here. (laughs) I didn't know that was something you could charge someone with. (laughs) So they lower the charges to manslaughter. But that still carried a possible 10-year prison sentence. Wow. He... The world's view, the country's view of this funny man, this comedian that everybody loved, had completely changed. He was no longer like the roly-poly, good-natured, funny man. He was the 350-pound man that crushed a woman to death. Oh. Yeah. Roscoe's trial began in November of 1921. The prosecution said that um, Virginia Rapp's bladder had ruptured when Roscoe Arbuckle had attempted to rape her or had raped her. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. medically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find out that that's a real problem. <laughs> okay. um, but the prosecutor was all in on this theory. This sounds like a guy who's really bad at women's anatomy. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the defense attorney was like, okay, this clearly cannot be the case. 
one thing that worked really strongly in Roscoe's favor was that Minta was there like every day of the trial with oh, him yeah. to, in support. They were not together at this time, but she had visited him when he was in jail before he had made bail. And she said, Roscoe, I just, I have one question to ask. Please don't be angry, but I must know. Were you in any way responsible for Virginia Rapp's death? And Roscoe said, Minty, I swear to God, I never touched that girl like they said I did. And that's all Minty needed to hear. She believed him. And so she was mm-hmm. right there supporting him every day. The prosecution started their case with their first witness, a nurse named uh, Grace Halston. This woman was convinced of Roscoe's guilt. And she stood there and she glared at him or sat there on the witness stand and glared at him. She testified that Rap had bruises all over her body, that her organs were torn in a way that suggested force, and that her death had to have been caused by an extreme amount of external force on her body. On cross-examination... How did she know that? Right? Yes, exactly. First of all, it's 1921. Second of all, she's a nurse. Did she do an autopsy? Like, is she qualified to do an autopsy? I don't think so. I don't think so either. So on cross-examination, Roscoe's defense attorney is like, "Um, couldn't a ruptured bladder have been caused by cancer? You know, lots of different things. And she admits, yes, that's true. And they also get her to admit that her the bruises on Virginia's body were more consistent with like a fall in a bathroom than like mm-hmm. being crushed to death. Yeah. There were no outward signs of trauma on Virginia Rapp's body. They when they initially took her to the hospital, the doctors were like, There's there's no sign of any kind of sexual assault here at all. Wow. Yeah. A doctor testified that the um, bladder seemed to have been injured from force inflicted on the outside of her body. So this is the doctor that examined her in the hospital. I'm sorry, not in the hospital, at the hotel. This is Dr. Beardsley. He's like the hotel doctor. And he said, yep, it looks to me like her bladder was injured from force, from an outside force. Hmm. But on cross-examination, he said that Rap hadn't said anything to him indicating that she'd been assaulted in any way. So she was in and out, coherent at some times when she was seen by this doctor. And she never said, get him away. He's the one that did this to me. She never made any claims that anybody had done anything to her. Um, And he also said that he believed that she probably could have been, her life could have been saved had she had surgery to repair her bladder in time and so Roscoe's defense attorney was like then let me ask you this Dr. Beardsley if you saw evidence that Miss Rapp would benefit from surgery why didn't you send her for surgery absolutely he said I don't have an answer for that that's literally what he said I have no answer for that what yeah is it just like he found out how she died after the fact and thought, oh, well, in retrospect, blah, 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 blah? Right. Okay. Yeah. The prosecution called some people who had been at the party. One woman said that she, about an hour after the alleged rape, she saw Roscoe 
very looking very relaxed, showing no signs of remorse or anything like that, and had no concern over the condition of Virginia Rep. But on cross-examination, she said that Roscoe didn't seem the least bit intoxicated at all. She wasn't sure that he'd had anything to drink. Mm-hmm. And then also said that she admitted that she had been coerced by the prosecution to testify <gasps> against She admitted Roscoe this Arbuckle. on the stand? Yep. Whoa. They had threatened to imprison her if she would not testify against Roscoe Arbuckle. What the fuck? Yep. Gosh, you gotta throw that, just throw it out. You gotta throw right? that whole case yeah. out, right? Yeah. So they bring, the defense brings forth another witness who had to sign uh, a statement saying that she had heard Virginia claim that he killed her, that he, that's that she heard Virginia Rapp say those words in reference to Roscoe Arbuckle. And then when she came forward at the trial, she said, that never happened. The prosecution forced me to sign that affidavit. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like at this point, we should have our little disclaimer where we say, the vast majority of rape allegations are oh, true. absolutely. Yeah, we should say absolutely. that. Here is what is so interesting to me about this case, or what, not interesting, the victim is not the one who made the rape allegation. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. She never made an allegation of rape. Yeah. It was somebody else who was there that made the only allegation of it ever, and it led to these charges against Fatty Arbuckle. That's unreal. It is unreal. Yeah. Um, a criminologist came forward who said that he saw he was an expert in fingerprints and he examined fingerprints found at the scene. Again, it's 1920 and that he found a fingerprint of Arbuckles that was laid perfectly over a fingerprint of Virginia's. And it showed that she had been trying to exit the door oh. and that he had placed his hand over hers and what? closed the door so that she what? could not get away. That is bullshit. It is such bullshit. Yes. (laughs) Um, The defense put on a witness, the house cleaner, the housekeeper at the hotel, who was like, I I dusted that door at least five times between when this incident supposedly took place and when they dusted for fingerprints. Mm -hmm. There's no way that those came from inside that hotel room. Well, give me a break. Yeah. Exactly lined up over the other one. (laughs) Come on. On Monday, November 28th, the defense called Roscoe Arbuckle to the stand. He was ready to go. He wanted to get out there. He wanted to tell his story. He was accused of the most terrible crime that he could imagine. And he had to set the record straight. He had to let the public know that this was not true. This was not him. He didn't do anything that he was accused of doing. All he had done was try and help this woman, this friend of his. Yeah. And then it had turned into this crazy thing. And so this is um, the exchange between Roscoe Arbuckle and his defense attorney when he's on the stand. So his defense attorney began, Mr. Arbuckle, where were you on September 5th, 1921? He said, I was at the St. Francis occupying rooms 1219, 1220, and 1221. Did you see Miss Virginia Rapp that day? Yes, sir. 
And what time and where did you see her? She came into room 1220 at about noon. The like questioning continued and Roscoe kind of listed off some of the people that were at the party. He talked about how he was going to go give his friend May a ride into town and that when he went into the bathroom to get dressed, that's when he discovered Virginia on the floor in pain. So this is what he continued. Uh, this is how his um, statement continued on the stand. He said, when I walked into 1219, I closed and locked the door and I went straight to the bathroom and found Miss Rapp on the floor in front of the toilet. She'd been vomiting. His defense attorney said, and what did you do? He said, when I opened the door, it struck her and I had to slide. I had to kind of slide in to get in and get by her and then get a hold of her. Then I closed the door and I picked her up. And when I picked her up, she vomited again. So I held her so that she could continue to vomit. And when she was finished, I put the seat down on the toilet and I sat her on it. Can I do anything for you? I asked her. And she said she wanted to lie down. So I picked her up and carried her into room 1219 and put her on the bed. I lifted her feet from the floor. I went to the bathroom again and then I came back dressed two or three minutes later. And I found her rolling on the floor between the two beds, holding her stomach. I tried to pick her up, but I couldn't. I immediately went out of 1219 into 1220, where the party was going on, and asked Mrs. Delmont, her friend, and another woman, Miss Prevon, who is one of the women who says she was coerced by the prosecution into signing an affidavit. Um, I asked them to come in. I told them that Miss Rapp was sick. At this point, he denied ever having put his hand over Virginia's hand on the yes. door. Um, he also told how at one point she'd become frantic and started like tearing at her clothing and then he said that he had called his friend fred fishback into the room and when he came in they had decided that they wanted to go put her in the tub and cool her down and see if that would help and so they did that and when they carry after that when they carried her back to the bed her friend maude started like rubbing her down with ice at that point roscoe tried to put a blanket over virginia and maude like spoke rudely to him yelled at him or something and he was upset because he's like i'm trying to deal with this fucking situation yeah and so he yelled at her he said if you don't shut up i'm gonna throw you out the window Whoa. yeah and so he was like I think that's important because he's admitting, like, maybe I didn't handle the situation the best. I did. I, I yelled at someone, like, whatever. I, but, you know, I don't know how to handle this situation any more than anybody else. Uh-huh. And so at that point, he finished, like, kind of his version of what had happened. And then he was cross-examined by the district attorney. And the district attorney says, um, what time did you say Miss Rapp entered your room? And he said, around noon. And the district attorney says, and you had known her before then? And he said, yeah, for about five or six years. And he, at that point, um, Roscoe admitted that he'd had some, a couple of drinks over that weekend, but he had never been intoxicated during that whole time. And then at this point, they took a recess in the middle of his testimony. And when they came back, and I don't understand really how this happened, but the prosecution was allowed to bring in some new evidence and kind of like lay that out and then continue uh-huh. their questioning. And among that evidence that they brought in was Virginia Rapp's ruptured bladder. <gasps> what? Yeah. Oh, God. Just yeah. the bladder? Just the bladder. Brought it into the courtroom as a piece of evidence. Whoa, yikes. Yeah. I assume it was like in a jar, preserved. I don't really know. How big are bladders? 
I don't know. Like that size? I'm picturing like a balloon that's burst. Yeah. Wow, that's bizarre. Yeah, super bizarre. So they just kind of like set that to the side and they continue oh, asking him questions. Like. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um and so they're really trying to like fluster him by having that there. They're like you know, asking him questions over and over again, trying to get him to kind of change his story, but he doesn't. He tells mm-hmm. it the same way every time. And so the DA's like, well, did you tell the hotel manager what had caused Miss Rapp's sickness? And he said, no. How should I have known what caused her sickness? And the prosecutor says, you didn't tell anybody that you found her in the, ba- in the bathroom? And Roscoe says, well, no, I mean, I guess nobody asked me. Hmm. And he said, and you didn't tell her that, or you didn't tell anyone that you found her between the beds? And he said, I, again, nobody asked me. I mean, I'm telling you. Uh-huh. And he said, you never to- said anything to anybody except that Miss Rapp was sick. And he said, no, no, yeah, that's all I said. And he's like, not even the doctor? And he's like, no. Told him she was sick. Yeah. Like, I don't under... What, what point are you trying to make here, sir? Like, I didn't know what was wrong with her. I knew she was sick, and that's all I knew. Huh. At the end of his questioning, he stepped down, and he felt... It was like you could see the relief on him that he'd finally gotten to tell right. his side of the story. Right. And everybody thought, like, this was great for the defense like he had come off great he'd stood up well even when to... he admitted that he wanted to throw one lady out yes. the window <laughs> yes <laughs> so next the prosecution and the defense both put on expert witnesses um, to talk about the bladder mm-hmm. and all four of the experts agreed or I'm sorry both of the experts agreed on four points the bladder was ruptured <laughs> yeah there was evidence in the tissue of chronic inflammation. There were signs of acute infection. And um, that an examination failed to reveal any pathological change in the vicinity of the tear preceding the rupture. What does that mean? The rupture was not caused by external force. Yeah. Both sides agreed Both to that? Both sides agreed to that. Well, then why are we even here? Right. Exactly. The defense was like, whoo, that is great news for us. We have definitely just won this case. Right. We are done getting out of here. Thank you, Jerry. Have a great day. But the prosecution wasn't done. They were going to make sure that the jury really thought this over and really thought about what kind of person Roscoe Arbuckle was. I thought you said, thank you, Jerry. No, Jerry. I thought so, too. And I was like, wait, who's who's Jerry? Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) So in the prosecution's closing argument, they said, this big, kind-hearted comedian, did he say, get a doctor for this suffering girl? No. He said, Shut up or I'll throw you out a window. Okay. Well. (laughs) (laughs) 
But he was not content to stop at throwing her out the window. But he didn't throw her out the window. He attempted attempted to make a sport with her by placing ice on her body. This man, then and there, proved himself guilty of this offense. This act shows you the mental makeup of Roscoe Arbuckle. Well, and everyone else who thought everyone that ice would help. Everyone else was doing that, exactly. <laughs> That's a weak case. Yeah. Weak case, my friend. Um, in contrast, the defense was like, hey, you guys, clearly this is a deliberate conspiracy against my client. This case is the shame of San Francisco. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> find your no, words, I can't find my words. Witness after witness has perjured themselves on the stand. Yeah. Who are you going to believe? The only person who brought this allegation. Mm-hmm. Was and they did. They pointed that out. The per, only person who brought this allegation did not testify at this trial. Ask yourself what that means. Mm-hmm. So the first trial ended on December fourth, nineteen twenty-one. After forty-three hours of deliberation, uh huh, with a hung jury. <gasps> wow. They voted ten to two in favor of acquittal. Wow. One holdout reportedly told the others that she would never change her mind. Because wow, a she woman had decided, was allowed on the jury. Oh, yeah, it was men and women. Wow. But she, California's always been progressive. <laughs> yeah. But she told the, her fellow jurors that she would never change her mind because she had decided Arbuckle was guilty when she had heard that he, was been, he had been arrested. Well, then she shouldn't should have been on the jury. <laughs> yeah, really. So immediately the prosecution tried him again. Uh-huh. Um, but this time they would have to do it without those witnesses who they had they had right. they did not testify this time. Um I'm shocked they decided to go again. Uh yeah. But the defense got real cocky about the case that they had put on. Oh no. They called someone who'd said that she had you know, had been forced to testify and that she had, in fact, lied at the previous trial and said that she had not heard Virginia Rapp ever accuse Roscoe Arbuckle of hurting her. And then they also called that original fingerprint witness, the expert, the fingerprint expert. The, the defense The defense called him? called him. And he said, yeah, I'm pretty sure that those fingerprints were placed there. Then that was faked. Wow. Yeah. But besides that, they put on no defense. They didn't even offer a closing argument. What the fuck? They felt so sure that the prosecution's case was lacking. They never put Roscoe on the stand. Why? Why would you do because that? Because they got really cocky. This time, oh. the jury deadlocked again. Well, I bet they did. But in a 10 to 2 in favor of conviction. Wow. And so the defense was like, oh, fuck, we really screwed that up. (laughs) (laughs) That was almost real, real bad. My God. Yeah. So Roscoe Arbuckle was tried a third time. Tell me he fired his defense. How many times can you get tried? Well, if it ends in a ends in a hung jury, they can continue. Just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because it's not double jeopardy. Yeah. If you've not been convicted. If you've not been convicted and you've not been acquitted. 
Hmm. If it ends in a mistrial, a hung jury, you can they can keep going forever. Crazy. Yeah. So this time, they put Roscoe on the stand. He tells the story, and he actually allows the defense to call some witnesses that he had not allowed them to call before. So he had asked his defense attorneys not to call anybody who would testify negatively about Virginia Rapp. So she oh. had this this reputation of being promiscuous and and entering into prostitution when she couldn't make ends meet and stuff like that. And at his first two trials, he had not allowed them to call any witnesses who would testify that. He thought it was inappropriate to do that about someone who was who had died. Well, and it's not relevant, right? It, so it the relevance be. comes down okay. to the damage to her body. Okay. That was where the relevance comes in. Okay. Yes. Um, had she had multiple abortions, had she sustained significant damage to her body, that could have explained the rupturing of her bladder. Okay. And I think that was finally the point that the defense called those witnesses and said, yes, she'd had, I don't know, five abortions or something and whatever. Gotcha. But. Roscoe had fought against that for his first two trials. And then by the third one, he's like, I guess if that's what has to happen for. Yeah. Yeah. For the truth. Then I guess, I guess that's what will happen. This time. The jury. Deliberated. For five minutes. What? Four minutes of which were spent writing this statement. And they came back with an acquittal. This statement that they wrote said, acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. Oh, wow. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. We feel also that it is only our plain duty to give him this exoneration under the evidence, for there was not the slightest proof to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believed. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. Wow. Yeah. So it took them one minute to acquit him. (laughs) So they just went in there like... And four (gasps) minutes to write that statement. That's amazing. And then they came out, and after they delivered that statement, they each stepped down from the jury box and all went up to Roscoe and either shook his hand or hugged him and apologized to him. Wow. Yeah. But now I'm like cringing because this this ruined him. His life was ruined by it. Um, He was blacklisted. In Hollywood, yeah, um, like a f- at that time there were actual blacklists. Oh, not just a thing. No, people it was say. not just a thing. People say he was actually physically put on a blacklist following his acquittal. It wasn't until after his acquittal that he was put on this list, and then they eventually reversed it. But the damage had yeah. been done. He was at that point at the end of his third trial. Um, he owed over seven hundred thousand dollars in legal fees, mm-hmm. which adjusted for inflation is over $10 million. He had wow. to sell his houses, all of his cars. He was left with He should have been like, hey, that's second trial's nothing. on you guys. Right, yeah. <laughs> he was left with essentially nothing. Sure. No and, coupon for the third trial? Right, yeah. <laughs> buy two, get one free. This one's on us, buddy. And his, like I said, his career never rebounded. 
he and Minty divorced. He did eventually work behind the lens directing under a pseudonym oh. for a while, and he he enjoyed that. He had a really great time with that, but he really missed performing. Yeah. Um, and he married a couple more times and found some happiness there. But when he was 46 years old, he signed a new movie deal with, I believe it was Warner Brothers. Like they were going to relaunch his career. He was going to have this great comeback. And then one night he went out to celebrate that deal and celebrate the one year anniversary with no. his one year anniversary with his wife. Brandy. They had a great night out on the town. Brandy. And then that night he went to bed and died in his sleep. Oh. He never got to, never got to have that, that new start. Holy shit. Yeah. So he is often remembered as the man who raped a girl with a Coke bottle, the man who crushed a woman to death. Mm -hmm. And none of these things are true. God, that is so sad. It is so sad. Buster Keaton said that he believed that Roscoe never got over the accusations against him. Yeah, and how that could he died you? of a broken heart. Hmm. I mean, how could you get over? Yeah, it? yeah. That's the really sad story of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. I've got a sad one too. You do? <laughs> I just think that's. I think that when people hear Fatty Arbuckle, they're like, oh yeah, that's that guy that crushed that woman to death. Like, I think that that's the little tidbit that people remember, and it's not true. Hang on, I want to look up pictures of him. While you guys do that, I have some uh, some uh, factual updates. Oh, factual About updates. About the bl- size of the bladder? <laughs> size of the bladder? Two to six inches. Oh my, oh. that's way smaller than I would have. Mm-hmm. Obviously it grows as it fills with yeah. piss. Piss? <laughs> what is he like that. Uh, also, abortion yeah. in the early 1900s was a felony in every I, state. That's what uh, I, thought. I thought it was illegal, yeah. Some I was wondering if it was one of those things where nobody talks about it, yeah. nobody... Uh, according to Wikipedia, some states included provisions allowing for abortion in limited circumstances, generally to protect the woman's life or to terminate pregnancies arising from rape or incest. Well, because that's one of the, the... The reason I thought that that was illegal, because is that's one of the theories on the Black Dahlia, mm. is that she was killed by a doctor who she was receiving an illegal abortion Gotcha, from. gotcha. Yeah. Virginia was gorgeous. Yeah. However, uh, abortions continued to occur mm-hmm. <laughs> and became increasingly available. And... Uh, by the 1930s, licensed physicians performed an estimated 800,000 abortions a year. Yeah, like, isn't the statistic like one in three women have had an abortion? I mean, it's going to happen whether people want it to Yeah, or not. exactly. Hot take. <laughs> Same with drinking and mm-hmm. prostitution. It's going to happen. Exactly I'm drinking right, right now. <laughs> no, I'm not. Take it away. Brandy, this is one that I'm shocked you have not done. Is it an all-timey kidnapping? It is. <gasps> It is. Oh, my gosh. Can you guess what it is? Um, I bet it's one that you have thought seriously about doing. Okay. But just didn't do for whatever reason. Okay. Because, like, there's, like, one kidnapping you haven't done. There is? And it's this one. One old-timey kidnapping you haven't done. Nothing comes to mind right away. Okay. 
Okay, let's see. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say, old-timey disclaimer. You guys know what I'm about to say. No, I'm not even going to say it. I'm just saying old-timey <laughs> insert, disclaimer. Insert old-timey disclaimer here. It was July 1st, 1874. Four-year-old Charlie Ross and his five- or six-year-old brother, Walter Ross, were playing in the front yard of their very nice home in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. When all of a sudden, two men pulled up in a buggy. They were like, hey boys, the 4th of July is right around the corner. You two look like you could use some fireworks and some candy. And some puppies. <laughs> Why don't you hop in our buggy and we'll go get some. Wow. An old-timey candy van. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is rumored, and I think it's probably true, mm-hmm. that the notion of, like, strangers with candy, um, don't go to some stranger who has candy. Uh-huh. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that two ways. <laughs> <laughs> it comes and then, like, if somebody that you don't know <laughs> comes up to you and it's like, hey, do you want, want some, some candy? candy? The answer's always no. Yeah. Someone and you've never I, seen before comes up, offers you candy, don't do don't it. Don't do it. So it's rumored that it comes from this. Okay, so I got in trouble when I was like five years old. Did you take candy from I a did. stranger? I did. So my dad. <laughs> yeah, so my dad has always bowled my whole life. Uh-huh. And when I was a little kid, I would go to the bowling alley with him and play in the arcade and stuff while he was bowling. My dad knows everyone. My dad knows literally everyone, especially if you're in a bowling alley. There's nobody there that doesn't know my dad. <laughs> okay. So I was like, by extension, no one here is a stranger. Uh-huh. Him. <laughs> so I'm playing in the arcade, playing. I really liked skee-ball, really liked claw machines. I was a claw machine master. Yes, you were. Yes. And this old man is in there. And he's got these little Brock's wrapped candies. They're like the little... Oh, Brandy, they weren't even good candies. They're like the ne- the square Neapolitan candies. Have you seen those? Where they're mm-hmm. brown of course. And white. Okay, so he has Vomit. those. Yeah. And he says, would you like one? So I'm at the bowling alley with my dad. My yeah. dad knows everybody at the bowling alley. Ergo, no one here is a stranger. Uh-huh. So I take the candy. Yeah. Eat it. I did not die. Uh-huh. But my dad found out that I took the candy from that man. And I, I don't, to this day, I'm not sure if my dad did not know that man, if he was legitimately a stranger. But I got in a lot of trouble. I didn't get to go to the bowling really? alley for weeks after that. Wow. Yeah. Ooh. I know. Is that like right here? They come in here? On that note, I'm going to pause. I have to use the bathroom. But you guys can keep yeah. going. That's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> my thing now. <laughs> Yeah, I just think that's I think that's really hard. I mean, what kid is going to say no to candy? Yeah, I got. I, I know we've all been warned, but still, yeah. it's candy. Yeah, yeah. I did not go, get to go to the bowling alley with my dad for like a couple of weeks because I took candy from that guy. I wonder if my dad will remember this story. But I mean, it sounds like he was just kind of a nice old man who wanted. Maybe he wasn't. That's the thing that I don't know. Even as an adult, I don't know if my dad did not know that man. But I'm saying maybe yeah, he didn't. He obviously wasn't trying to abduct me or anything. Or maybe he was. And your dad looked over and was like, maybe. No. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm saying like, gosh, I don't know. I feel like you can get away with so much more. Not get away with. But you can do things when you're a woman. And I just feel like if I were out in public and I had a big handful of candy and a kid was eyeballing it. 
Well, no, I think I wouldn't give. Oh, on that note, I went to Dave and Buster's once, had a whole bunch of tickets, didn't want anything with the tickets. Yeah. And so I saw this little kid. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm just going to go up and give him these tickets. Yeah. And so it wasn't until I like tapped this little kid on the shoulder uh-huh. to give him the tickets that I was like, holy shit, I'm a fucking stranger. And yeah. like, I should have asked his mom first, obviously. <laughs> like, it did not even cross my mind. I was yeah. just like, hey, little boy, would you like all these tickets? <laughs> In exchange, come back to my car with me. (laughs) And I apologized to his mom. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I just realized how that sounded. I legitimately won all these tickets, don't want anything with them, thought your kids might enjoy them. Yeah. And she was like, no, thank you so much. And she lowered her gun. That's right. (laughs) She told security to back off. (laughs) And they uncuffed me. (laughs) Good for you, Brady. Yeah. So... The kids hop in the buggy because mm-hmm. they're very excited about the fireworks yeah. and the candy. And they actually kind of knew these guys. Yeah. These men had come by the neighborhood a few days before mm-hmm. and had given the boys some candy. Mm-hmm. So these were, you know, technically not strangers. Right. See? Technically. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So the boys got I'm in the buggy. I'm thinking my story ends way better than this story does. I. Well, so the boys got in the buggy, took off. They rode around. So far, by the way, I don't know this story. Okay, okay. No. I feel like you're going to. Okay. They rode around for like an hour. They took this really weird route kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. And finally, they pulled up to a store. And one of the men turned to five-year-old Walter and was like, Hey, hey, here's 25 cents. Why don't you go into the store and get yourself some fireworks. Adjusted for inflation. Okay, the inflation calculator. Doesn't go back that it far. Doesn't go back at all. So I just did 1913. Yeah. That's like seven bucks. Yeah. So, you know. Even more. Ten bucks? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So Walter went into the store with his shiny new quarter. And he picked out some fireworks. And when he turned to leave, the buggy was gone. <gasps> the two men had taken off with his little brother. Okay, that's weird. Right? Oh, nope. They needed to leave one behind so he could tell. Um, we'll keep going, but this this is weird. Okay. It's just weird. Yeah. Maybe they were trying to send a message. But no, they also left somebody behind who could identify them. So right. it is super weird. Yeah. Hang on, lower your mic a little, would you? I'm, I'm very hunched over currently. <laughs> you're in your thinking. I am. Mode. I'm in my thinking. You know, you do kind of melt down when you're thinking. Mm-hmm. 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 Because sitting... my brain's so heavy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when you're sitting erect, you're just... There's <laughs> no not a in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back at home, the boy's mom, Sarah Ann... I guess I shouldn't have said back at home because she was away in Atlantic City. No. She w- she'd been ill, so she was recovering from an illness. The boys had three other sisters. Okay. So that just left at home, like maybe some servants, I think, mm-hmm. and then the boy's father, Christian. And Christian had assumed that Norm was walking into the room. Yeah, and that he should pause his story. And Christian had just. <laughs> what? I was just staring at him until he made eye contact. <laughs> Quit staring at my husband, Brandy. Oh, I can't stop, Kristen. He's like the little boy at Dave and Buster's. You just got to go talk to him. 
don't offer Norm candy because he will go he home. He will. He will 100% <laughs> take it. <laughs> yeah. He does not know how to say no. <laughs> Christian assumed when he didn't see his boys in the front yard that they'd just gone over to a neighbor's house to play. No big deal. Yeah. But after a while, you know, they didn't come home. And finally, a neighbor who had actually witnessed the boys getting into the buggy with these two strange men went over to Christian and was like, hey, hey, just so you know, I saw Charlie and Walter get into a buggy with these two guys earlier. Mm-hmm. And Christian obviously freaked out. Both of his boys had been taken and no one knew where they were. Wow. Meanwhile, at the fireworks slash candy store, little Walter was alone and sobbing. Yeah. Some people noticed, but obviously no one knew the gravity of the situation. They just thought, oh, this little guy, he got lost. We need to get him home. So they took him back home. And obviously Christian was relieved and hopeful. He had one son back. Maybe he'd get the other one too soon. Not too soon. Too soon. (laughs) As well. As well. (laughs) You know, maybe little Charlie was somewhere around. Before they had time to kill him. Mm. Mm. But then Walter started talking. He told his father what he knew. That two men had lured them away from home. Mm. This was so shocking that Christian, and I think at this point there were some other adult relatives in the home. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what to do. So my understanding is that they didn't do anything for a while. Then, two days later, Christian received a ransom letter. They didn't do anything for two days? That's my understanding. Oh, I don't know if they were holding out hope that, like, Charlie would come home the same way Walter did. Oh, no. Or, you know, I mean, this was before the telephone, right? Yeah. I mean, this was... I don't know. Norm. Norm. When was the telephone invented? I want to say the 1880s. Ahoy! Did you know how that's how Alexander Graham Bell wanted people to answer the phone? Really? Ahoy! I wish we did! I know! (laughs) The telephone was invented March 10th, 1876. Okay, so this is 1874. So if it was invented in 76, you know, it took a while for everybody to get it. Well, yeah, you got to get the infrastructure up and all that, so... Brandy, I know you're thinking that everyone had one I'm very confused by what you just said. The kidnapping was in 1874. Right. And if it was invented in 1876... It had not been invented yet. Right. Yes. Why are you you confused? I have to go again. My stomach is like... (laughs) What? My stomach's killing me. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Norm, this is unprecedented on the podcast. You know, I hate to brag, but, uh, you know, I have my potty breaks, but I only have one per episode. (laughs) I've never shit my pants on the podcast. (laughs) Hey, neither have I. (laughs) So, two days later, Christian receives this ransom letter. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's weird. Okay. I mean, there are misspellings. And when I say misspellings, I mean, like, words you wouldn't think could be misspelled Mm -hmm. or misspelled. Okay. And the handwriting was super weird. So I read a bunch of old-timey articles, obviously. Like it was put together by somebody who was illiterate? 
Yes. Uh-huh. But also, like, in the old-timey articles, you know, this was back when everyone was required to write with their right hand. Yeah. So the articles were like, it looked as though someone were trying to write with their left hand. And I'm like, some of us do that. <laughs> but anyway, it looked like someone was using their opposite hand yes. to write this letter. And they were illiterate. Yeah. Okay. Here's what the ransom letter said. Yes. Tell me. Tell me everything. Um, It said um? It starts with an um? Well, I'm thinking of how I want to do this. I'm going to lift my finger every time a word is misspelled, and I want you to say ding, okay? Just okay. so I just want the listeners to Got know it. what a mess this thing okay. is. Mr. Ross, be not uneasy. You son, ding, Charlie, ding, Bruster, ding. Brewster, he all ding, right. Ding. We as got him, and no powers on earth can deliver out of our hand. You will ding, have ding. to pay. Ding. For us before ding. you get ding. him from us and ding, pay ding. us a big cent too. If you put the cops hunting for him, you ding. is only defeating ding. you ding. own end. <laughs> oh my god! We is got him fit. Ding. So no living power can get ding. him from us alive. Alive ding. is two words. If any approach ding. is made ding. to his hiding ding. place, that is the signal ding. for his instant annihilation. Ding. And you know they couldn't spell that. <laughs> if you ding. regard ding. his life, ding. puts ding. no one to search for him, you money ding. can fetch him ding. out alive and no ding. other existing ding. powers don't deceive ding. yourself ding. and think the detectives can get ding. him from us for that is one impossible. Ooh, the spelling on that. You ding. hear from us in few day. Ding. Oh. Yes. It's a mess. It's a mess. How are they spelling you? They misspelled it every time. Why you? I mean, phonetically, they're... <laughs> <laughs> You're defending these... <laughs> so, one, one source I saw said that the initial ransom letter... Demanded 4,000 British pounds. Mm. No one else said that, though. Everyone else seems to agree that these kidnappers wanted $20,000. Okay. A few days later, another one of these ransom letters comes. It's written in this same, like, bizarre style. So, you know, even though the writing wasn't super clear, the kidnappers, the message was clear. The message was clear, yes. Um, They did not want police involved. Mm -hmm. They wanted the money. And in return for the money, they'd give Charlie back. Easy peasy. He was not being harmed. He was totally fine. But he was hidden for sure. And you better not come at us with the police. And that will result in his certain annihilation. Darn right. But it wasn't that simple. So, Christian and Sarah Anna. I'm sorry. Christian and Sarah Ann wanted to comply with these orders. Yeah. And I personally believe that if they'd had the money, they totally would have. They just didn't have the money? No. So they were in this weird spot where they had this super nice house. It was very well maintained. Yeah, they had this dry goods store, so Mm -hmm. it seemed like they were doing well. But it's funny. We talked about this last week. There was an economic economic recession in Mm -hmm. like 1873. Yeah. So they were actually in debt even though they looked like they were doing great. So they were in no position to yeah. pay the ransom money, and that's why they had to call the police. Wow. Because they didn't, they couldn't work with yeah. the ransom. Yeah. 
So Christian reached out to the police, and soon this became national news. Mm -hmm. Quick thing about this case. Kidnappings had obviously happened before. Ransoms had happened before. This is the first U.S. kidnapping that became widespread news. This became huge. Yeah. So at this point, Sarah Ann was still in Atlantic City, and Christian hadn't really known what to do about the fact that one of their sons was missing, Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to upset her. So he didn't tell her, and she found out on the newspaper. Yeah. (gasps) Yeah, that's how she found out. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Horrible. Oh, no. People all across the nation became obsessed with this story. The Pinkerton Detective Agency, which you mentioned in a couple cases ago. Mm -hmm. um, This was back when they were actually really good at their jobs. Yes. uh, Swooped in to help. They created tons of posters with an artist's rendering of Charlie's little face. Mm -hmm. Wikipedia says they created millions of posters. That's bullshit. It's thousands. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. It's the 1800s. Yeah. Someone wrote a song about the crime, and it became a hit. (gasps) It was called Bring Back Our Darling. Oh, you can sing it for us? I'd have to make it up. Bring back our darling. That's Kristen Caruso with her latest (laughs) song that's racing up the charts. (laughs) Bring back our darling. We suspect he's died by now. (laughs) No. Well, he was born in like the 1870s. (laughs) This whole time, the kidnappers continued to send messages. And they worked out a system where Christian would respond to their ransom letters in the personal column Mm -hmm. of the Philadelphia Ledger. And so police basically had this strategy. They always wanted to appear willing to negotiate because they wanted the kidnappers to communicate with them as much as possible in the hopes that at some point they'd screw up, they'd reveal where they were, all that stuff. Okay. But the kidnappers, even though they weren't super literate, they seemed kind of smart. Okay. Okay. Because they were not taking the bait. Big fan they of the kidnappers, are you? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just saying they weren't falling for any tricks. <laughs> Meanwhile, people were obsessed with this case. Everyone knew that this cute little boy had been abducted. And they knew exactly how much the kidnappers wanted. Everyone knew. $20,000. And they also knew that the Rosses couldn't afford to pay it. So they did an old-timey GoFundMe. That's exactly what they did. Yeah. So, and at one point even, so they raised the money. And then I saw also that the city of Philadelphia offered $20,000 to to reward anyone who could help with the arrest of the kidnappers. This was a big, big thing. But really, it was kind of good and bad that everyone was super interested in the case. Because everyone was just so eager to help. Yeah. But all they had to go on was... The word of a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. So little Walter did his best, and he told what details he could remember. He said that the kidnappers rode in a black buggy pulled by a dark brown horse. One of the men was large, about 35 years old, which I'm like, how uh, that, that kid has no, no idea. He's and 73 years old. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Little kids have no idea. No. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe well, how parts old, of this. How old is Walter? Like five or six. 
Yeah, I bet if I asked Jack right now how old I am, he would have no idea. No, and why would he? Yeah. I'm wondering if it was like a combination of what Walter had seen, plus maybe, I don't know if that neighbor got a good look at these strange men, but maybe the combination of what? I'm not not doing anything weird. You were at first. I'm sorry. You totally were at first. You guys, I'm making weird. you tried to act like you didn't do it, and you thought I wouldn't notice. You're right. You're right. You guys, I was making weird hand gestures. Again, story of my life. Anyway, Brandy, one guy was about 35. (laughs) Stop it. He had a full beard and a mustache, and he wore a ring on his right hand. So, there you go. Go find him. Yeah. The other man was skinnier, younger, had a mustache, and a fat red face. (laughs) (laughs) Both of them wore dusters, which, those are like the long Long, overcoats, right? Yeah, long overcoat, yeah. With straw hats, which doesn't seem like the right combination. Yeah. One of them wore goggles as a disguise. I'm picturing like those riding goggles. Yeah. And, uh, or like scuba goggles, maybe. <laughs> Probably some old-timey scuba. <laughs> Just, you know, the one window. <laughs> Walter said that one of the men had a monkey nose. The fuck's a monkey nose? Exactly. What the hell is a monkey nose? Remember it, folks. Just hold on to your straw hat and remember monkey nose. What? Do you have a theory? No. What? But that's what I... So, my... Oliver, my bulldog... Yeah. I say say he has a gorilla nose, because there's just something about his nose that looks like a gorilla's, but I couldn't even tell you what it is. I can't wait till we get to the relevant part of the story. (laughs) How you feeling, Norm? Glad to have you back. It's been a few minutes. You look sweaty. Yeah. I think that energy drink took me down. <laughs> hey, good thing it didn't have any caffeine. Am I right? You two feel fine, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't think it's the lunch. It's got to be no, the energy lunch. drink. Yeah. You guys, the Ooh. gaming historian is dying. and um, No, I'm not dying. I'm okay now. You, you say that. dysentery. <laughs> you felt like dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've never had dysentery, but... <laughs> it just hit me. Anyway... Continue. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Immediately, all kinds of tips started coming in, and most of them, them were useless. There was one that sounded kind of good, though. Apparently, on the day after Walter and Charlie were taken, a man in Trenton, New Jersey, sold a horse and buggy that matched the exact description. But no one could remember exactly what he looked like, and that tip kind of yeah. fizzled out. Well, didn't all the horse and buggies look alike? Like, Oh, you're saying all horses look the okay. same? Okay. <laughs> Just saying, there's lots of dark brown horses, lots of black buggies. Actually, pink was really the color. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that sounds like yeah. he was tall, he wore t-shirts sometimes. sometimes like, yeah. It's anybody. Months went by. The kidnappers continued to send ransom letters, and for the most part, their message stayed the same. Charlie's safe, but he's well hidden, so you're never going to find him. We want 20 grand. Give us the money, and we'll return him safely. Mm -hmm. Christian and Sarah Ann worked with the police on the negotiations. Oh, he's let Sarah Ann in on it now? (laughs) Yeah, I meant... Well, you know what? It took forever to find her name Mm -hmm. anywhere. I had to 
like it wasn't until I found an article from the 1960s that wow. I found her name. Everywhere else, it was Christian and his wife, and his wife, and his wife. And wow. I bet the gaming historian's wife really hated huh? that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's exactly what it is. That is, I've had too many years of being so-and-so's wife, so I'm like, fuck no. No way am I calling her Christian's wife. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, I have to tell you the truth. So I texted you today and was like, could you come over like half an hour later? Yeah. The reason I needed you to come over half an hour later was because I hadn't found out this woman's name yet and I had (laughs) to to find her name. (laughs) Okay. So several times it looked like they were actually going to do this exchange. Yeah. But every time the kidnappers backed out. Wow. Every time they had the plan just meticulously laid out. They had this plan for where to leave the money. They had time built in for the kidnappers to thoroughly examine every bill, make sure they weren't marked or anything. Christian, every time, agreed that he would go by himself to a remote location. He would wait as long as the kidnappers wanted him to wait, and he would be the one to take his son. But it never materialized. Never. But it never happened. Snack, uh. snack break. Kiki, snack break. Second Is this on the bingo card? She's just like you. I wish I was going on a snack break. <laughs> Norman, you lost you lost a couple pounds there, yeah, didn't you? I'd say you about, look great. I'd say about six pounds. <laughs> Illegal dumping. Did you accidentally mix <laughs> up? Did you accidentally mix up your energy drink and your colon blow? <laughs> you know, I get them mixed up all the time, Randy. I think that's what it is. <laughs> we shouldn't keep them in the same cabinet. <laughs> the bags look too similar. <laughs> Classic mix up. You know, they're they're both delicious. I love them. So the first time I went down, nothing happened. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe it's just just some cramps, whatever. As soon as I sat down again, it like attacked me. Norman, keep in mind this is a classy show, okay? Oh, is it? <laughs> no. No. Kristen told a story about shitting yeah, in a bag I was gonna say, on this podcast. Didn't you didn't you poop in that a That was a bag? really more of an arty story. It was kind of an arty take on shitting hey, in peanut, a bag. You not cried. <laughs> Kind of an emotional tale when you put it that way. Harrowing <laughs> tale of survival. <laughs> so, of course, you know, as it always is with these stories, every Bob Moss got a talking to, <laughs> every sketchy dude got a talking mm-hmm. to. Police were trying to track down these kidnappers any way possible. At one point, police got super excited because they found this guy who had been robbing. All these houses in that neighborhood. Uh-huh. Yeah. Surely he'd taken the kid, too. Yeah. No. No, it turns out he was just a robber, just a general. <laughs> He's like, hey, man, I just take things. I don't they take don't kids. take people. <laughs> a strict no people policy. <laughs> <laughs> More of a lone wolf. <laughs> then they found out that a whole bunch of weirdos who'd been in the neighborhood around the time of the kidnapping. It was a group of five men and one woman. And they'd gone up to all these houses and started asking all these weird questions like, 
who lives here? Do you rent or own? And the police were like, that's sketchy. Yeah. That's Did they ask sketchy. if they were going to be home for Christmas? <laughs> Are you thinking the home alone? <laughs> <laughs> and after the kidnapping, they'd all left the area. So police were like, all right. They spent yes. forever trying to track these people down, and eventually they did. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's here's the bad news. There turns out they owned a tree and shrub business. Oh no! And they, they were just, just going for business. Yes, yeah, they were just like going to see who owned what house, and you know if they could do some landscaping. Oh no! So detectives were chasing their tails, and at the same time they were trying to communicate with the kidnappers through the newspaper. Then. One day, in Bennington, Vermont, they found Charlie Ross. No. Yes. Alive? He was traveling with a woman, a woman who he referred to as his new mama. How do they know it's him? When questioned. Skeptical Brandy is skeptical. <laughs> Your eyebrows are just, <laughs> it's just one thick line. <laughs> He said that he was from Germantown, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and that his real name was Charlie Ross, but his new mama had changed his name. Detectives were flipping the fuck out. They were overjoyed. This was amazing news. Immediately, one of Charlie's uncles hauled ass to Vermont to take the boy home. It's not him. It's not him. I'm not There's no this. fucking way it's him. Yeah, it wasn't the... Okay, this is... this. It was a Charlie Ross? This is nuts. Hold on to your pants. I'd just like to point out that I'm not the one that said this is nuts. (laughs) The way you always say it is... Is is that not nuts? You say, is that not fucking nuts? (laughs) Okay, first of all, I don't make a face like that when I say it. You you like do this with your head? (laughs) I'm bobbing my head, guys. Okay, this kid was the right age, he matched the physical description of Charlie Ross. And he hadn't even been lying. He had been newly adopted, so the woman with him was his new mama, and he was from Germantown, but his name was Charlie Huss. Oh my god! And I don't know if it was like, he was like four, and yeah. his pronunciation wasn't quite, quite right, or if the people were so excited yeah. that they just heard what they wanted to hear. Yeah. But yeah, oh. it, wasn't, it wasn't the right boy. Mm-hmm. I knew it. Can you believe that, though? Ugh. But this wasn't the only time that Charlie was spotted. People all over the place were wanting to help. So Charlie's were spotted in Canada, in Denver, in Italy, in Cuba. Charlie was all over the place. Vietnam. I didn't see Vietnam, but hey, maybe, you know. <laughs> then what? What? Am I missing something? Yeah. What am I missing? Fine. What am I missing? That's what they called the enemy in Vietnam. They're oh. Charlie, have you seen Forrest Gump? It's Charlie all around Charlie's us. Charlie's all around us. Oh, I've never understood that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never understood it. <laughs> Is this like how it took me like 15 years to realize that Jenny had AIDS? <laughs> Well, Spoilers. if they don't know by now. Someone's, some people haven't seen Forrest Gump. 
you know what? He also gets shot directly in the buttocks. So, spoil jumped up and bit him, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, then in August of 1874, something happened. Mm-hmm. A great rascal and coward named Clinton Mosher told police that his brother, William Mosher, and his brother's super sketchy friend, Joseph Douglas, had asked him to help them with a crime. <gasps> this sounds like a real lead. They wanted, Skeptical Brandy is less skeptical. The eyebrows are separated now. Yes. They are up, mm-hmm. feeling good. They wanted to kidnap one of the Vanderbilt kids. Mm. So Clinton gave police enough information about William and Joe to indicate that these could be the guys who had also kidnapped Charlie Ross. Mm-hmm. And initially, police were able to compare William Mosher's handwriting to that of the ransom notes, and it seemed like a match. Exact details on what he told the police in this kind of initial interview are kind of unclear. But the bottom line is that he definitely pointed to his brother and the brother's friend as like, hey, pretty sure these are the guys who did it. Yeah. So police started looking into this. They talked to some locals in Philly, and they found out that sure enough, William and Joseph had been in the area at the time of the kidnapping. They'd lived together in a small house on Monroe Street. Shout out to Philly. I don't know where on Monroe Street, but maybe you live on Monroe right now, and you're like, oh, maybe my you God. you live in that house. And people said that William had had a wife and a child with him. Mm. Great. So now all they had to do was find William and Joe. Yes. But where the hell were they? I don't know. Neither did they. (laughs) For months, detectives went all over the place trying to find these two. And it was so frustrating because multiple times they came like really, really close to catching them. Like sometimes within a day, sometimes within just a couple of hours. But somehow these guys were always just like one step ahead (sighs) of the police. (sighs) What do you suspect? I don't know. Turns out, they had a guy on the inside. I was going to say, there's a mole! Yep. William's wife had a brother named William Westervelt. Too many Williams. I know, I know, it's a mess. They only had like three names back then. (laughs) This fucking cat. I know, this cat is a mess. You know, usually you guys talk about Kiki doing something cute. She's just a little hellion today. She is. Well, now she wants to play with when, toys. When she she's wants just to eat. being adorable, it's fine. But when she's making noise, <laughs> William Westervelt was a former police officer. Mm-hmm. I think he'd been fired for kind of being a sketchball. Mm-hmm. But you know, he was allowed to be on this search team because he was just being super helpful. Great. Uh huh. So he was passing along yeah. all this information yep. to the kidnappers. Yeah. It would have been really handy if he had a phone. He could have just called him. I yeah, bet he had to. Ahoy! Just, I, be, <laughs> I bet he. I bet he had to like run I, down there, right. sweating. Listeners, what? Let's get together. Let's start. Saying Let's bring ahoy. back ahoy. <laughs> I mean, people only text now. Listener homework. Next Listener time you answer the phone, <laughs> answer ahoy. Answer it ahoy. <laughs> So police are working like crazy to track down William and Joe and the poor police. I mean, they don't know that they're being, you know, someone's blowing up their spot every single time. 
Meanwhile, on November 1st of 1874... Mm, one day before your birthday. It's true. You look great for your age. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the decomposition is barely even noticeable. <laughs> this is pretty pretty. It's really holding up nicely. <laughs> Bonus points if you got that death becomes her reference. No one did. You know it was only me. <laughs> <laughs> Christian and Sarah Ann received another letter from the kidnappers. It was their 25th letter. Holy shit, 25 letters. And it was the last one they'd ever received. Oh, no. Then, on December 13th, 1874, in Brooklyn. Some places said Long Island. I don't know enough about New York. Forgive me, New Yorkers. A man woke up to an alarm bell. Mm. Which, I'm like, what kind of rudimentary... <laughs> this was like a home alarm system. Yeah. 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 Was it like a fire alarm? So, okay, let me, I'll tell you. Or did he have just like a ding on his door? <laughs> here's, what, here's what I'm envisioning. Yeah. I'm envisioning like some string tied to a bell and, cause like. Or just like a, a bag of cans. Yeah. <laughs> just, yes. Is that like a Rube Goldberg machine? <laughs> so. His brother's his brother, who was a judge, lived next door to him. Okay, and he knew that his brother's house was unoccupied. Mm-hmm. So you know you shouldn't be hearing that bell. Yeah. But he also knew that like a strong wind would sometimes get yeah. that bell going. So he wasn't super worried. But he looked over into his brother's house, and <laughs> in my notes I have a light was on. A light was not on. A lantern was on. A flame was lit. A flame was lit. (laughs) And he's like, oh shit, someone has broken into my brother's house. The glow of the computer was clearly visible. (laughs) (laughs) Every light was a blaze. Netflix was on. Yeah. It's a mess. Could have sworn my brother unsubscribed from Apple TV. (laughs) I thought he was more of a Hulu guy. So, so this guy is like, whoa! He gets everybody in his house to like wake up, grabs their you know AK forty sevens or whatever he had yeah. back in the eighteen hundreds, and goes over there, guns blazing, yeah. and it turns into this old timey shootout, like pew 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 pew. And at the end, when the dust had cleared, the good guys had won. <gasps> William Mosher died immediately. And Joseph Douglas was severely wounded. Oh, my gosh. Here's where this story gets a little iffy. Because, like, no one who was there that night really has the same story. Yeah. But it seems like it's agreed that as Joseph Douglas lay there dying, he said that there was no point in lying anymore. And he might as well admit that he... And William had kidnapped Charlie Ross. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, okay, okay, yeah. Where is the little boy? Oh, he's dead. And Joseph Douglas said he couldn't give them that information. Because William, who was dead on the floor, floor. was the only one with that information. Charlie's dead, right? I mean, we'll get into some theories later. Okay. But the bottom line is, 
Joseph died two hours later. Wow. And he he claimed that Charlie was alive. He just didn't know where. Okay. Which I think is so bizarre. Yeah. All right. So police interviewed everyone who was close to these men, hoping that one of them said something to someone. But either no one really knew or no one was saying. Yeah. Meanwhile, poor little Walter Ross was taken up to the Brooklyn morgue oh, to, look to, identify the, the yeah, bodies? to look at these dead bodies. He immediately recognized Joseph Douglas as the driver of the buggy, and he identified William as the other man. Okay. You know monkey how? Nose. Monkey nose. In reality, what William had is something called syphilis nose. <gasps> oh, yeah! I had never heard of this! Yeah! Okay, because I was like, well, but that's an STD. I did some brief Googling. Yeah. Horrifying image searches. Yeah. Um, yeah, apparently back in the day before they had good treatments, syphilis could really mess up your face. Yeah. And could result in nasal collapse. Mm-hmm. Have you seen these pictures? How yeah. You, how do you know okay, about this? It, well, haven't you seen, um, fucking, uh, what? Lame is? No, I actually haven't. So the movie version, the ladies of the night, uh-huh. they have this rash all over their face. Uh-huh. It's syphilis. Oh. It's meant, it lo- makes them look like they have rosy cheeks, and oh. but it's their syphilis. I, and I've heard that, yeah, it can, the nasal collapse and all of that. Okay, yeah, so they said that this My was- dog also has syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> that poor dog. It's going around right now. Uh, it is. They said it's on the rise. Yep. Brandy uses him for breeding purposes. It's disgusting. No, not my poor dog. So yeah, they said that it was really common for people back in the day who had bad syphilis to wear artificial clip-on noses. Oh my god! Because it was such a stigma. Because number one, yeah. it's an STD, and so. it's right there on your fucking face. Yeah, exactly. You got this, you know, collapsed yeah. nose. Ooh. Have you Googled? Yeah. Google syphilis nose. It is horrifying. Yeah. Well, you know what it looks like? What? Michael Jackson's nose. Whoa. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? (laughs) It really does. It really does. New theory. Michael Jackson was from the Victorian area. (laughs) And he had syphilis. (laughs) But back to the case. Yes. So the two kidnappers were dead. Oh, God, what'd you just look at? close this. I was just looking further down the images. You can't just scroll syphilis nose. (laughs) So the two kidnappers were dead. Charlie was nowhere to be found. But the case couldn't just end there. Someone had to pay for this crime. And who better? What? What? Who? Who's the only person who can? We've got one bad guy still alive, and someone has to be charged. Oh for my gosh! What? Uh, how do you how do you pin this on someone else? Well, they pinned it on William Westervelt, the former police officer yeah. and current douchebag, who had been tipping off William and Joseph. Okay, so yeah, you can. Yeah, I mean, but you can't. <laughs> But then you're totally right. You're totally right. <laughs> you're going to see how right you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
Okay, we'll we'll get to it. We'll get to it. <laughs> I'm struggling so much with this. <laughs> so, you know, obviously at some point he had conf- he confessed that he knew William and Joseph well and that he knew that they had kidnapped Charlie Ross and that at some point he talked to them about ransom money. Do they charge him with kidnapping? Yes. In in 1875, they charged him with kidnapping based off of that confession. Oh. Um, But Christian and Sarah Ann weren't really interested in the legal side of things. I kind of wonder if, you know, the prosecution was just like, we got to get somebody. Yeah. Um, So they were still holding out hope that their son was still alive. So as William was being held in prison, I know. They begged him for information. They were like, if you just tell us anything, we will do everything we can to make sure you're pardoned for this. Wow. And at one point, even government officials implied that they would give him a full pardon if he would just talk. Mm -hmm. Part of me also wonders, did they even want to take him to the trial? Or were they just trying to scare him? Yeah. But every time they talked to him, William was like, look, I've told you everything I know. You can threaten me with death. I'm not going to tell you anything new because I don't know anything more. I know that they did it. I gave them information. We talked about ransom money. That's it. That's it. it. Wow. But finally, after countless interrogations, he said, tell Mr. Ross to search the Catholic institutions. And they were like, what do you mean? Yeah, it's real fucking big, buddy. And he said, orphan asylums, schools, search them all. You might find him. What? And they were like, well, how do you know he might be there? And he was like, I don't know. I'm just saying that's your best bet. He he was like, it's just a theory. Oh, my god. It's just my advice. And, you know, I would say it's not necessarily bad advice because Orphan trains were a thing back then. The like, fuck's an orphan train? You never heard of an orphan train? Oh my gosh. They would take kids. This was actually profitable for churches and stuff. They would take kids on trains throughout the United States. And if you wanted to adopt a kid, and I mean like going to PetSmart and adopting a pet, you could go and just take a kid. So there are some people who believe that maybe this kidnapping things got kind of weird and you know it was too much so they just put charlie ross on an orphan train and oh he could have lived out his life i mean or he could have been killed you know who knows who knows well i'm hoping us at the end of this story (laughs) no maybe it'll it'll be it'll depend it'll depend oh yeah so with no new information william westervelt's trial began (laughs) <laughs> what, Brandy? What? How? Well, you heard the, the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as as you pointed out... Hey, these are old-timey cases. They'll, yeah, they'll do it. they're probably going to hang him for it. Yeah, <laughs> like the day after. Yes! <laughs> yeah, so as you pointed out, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence. No! <laughs> Not much of a case against yeah. him. So here was the prosecution's argument. The- what? There's no way this guy is getting off because they, there's no one else. There's literally no other person that mm-hmm. they could possibly charge. And mm-hmm. the whole country wants someone to pay for this. This guy's getting convicted and he's going to be killed for it. Well, 
prediction. Okay. Let's see, shall we? (laughs) Here was the prosecution's case. William was kind of like the third conspirator Mm. in this kidnapping. He'd been the one handling the negotiations. He'd been dropping off the ransom letters at the post office or whatever. Mm. Um, And you know what? Where's the proof of that? Well, don't worry about it. You know, uh, and... He knew more than he was letting on, okay? So just shut up. <laughs> just shut up. Can we kill him already? <laughs> handwriting experts said that some of the ransom letters were clearly William Westover's handwriting. Hmm. Or was it Westerfeld? You know, whatever. Yeah. West Winchesterton field. <laughs> Several witnesses said that they'd seen William with a little boy who looked a lot like Charlie. Mm. So what do you say to that, Brandy? No. Clearly, it was him, third conspirator. Okay. (laughs) And Walter, who was now seven, testified for two days. This poor kid. Yeah, Um, and he was probably like, I've never seen that guy in my life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, this is the weirdest thing to me. Because he went up, he testified, he talked about the two men who were now dead. Yeah. And on cross-examination, the defense was like, have you ever seen this guy before? You ever seen William Westerfeld? And Walter was like, no. 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 Like That's because he was a silent partner. Invisible, if you will. <laughs> he was hidden in the back of the oh buggy. Oh, my goodness. Brandy? Yeah? You are wrong. What? <laughs> the evidence in this case was so bad that even an old-timey <gasps> jury could not convict oh, him on kidnapping. But they did find him guilty of the lesser charge of conspiracy to commit kidnapping. Because he okay. had, yeah, yeah, he yeah. had, he had helped in some and abetted yeah. after the fact. He was sentenced to seven years of solitary confinement. Oh! Um, people kept thinking he would talk at some point. But yeah, he didn't. He legitimately probably did not know anything else. You know, some... Some, like, mob bosses, Bob Mosses, mm-hmm. had a theory that he had drowned the boy in the East River. I don't know. I don't... I think if anyone killed Charlie, it was one of the two guys. Yeah. So, William never said anything new. And when he got out of prison, he just vanished. Mm. After this kidnapping, the Ross family was never the same. Christian and Sarah Ann never stopped looking for their little boy. Together, they investigated hundreds of leads. More than 600 people came forward claiming to be Charlie Ross. Wow. And this went on for forever. The Rosses talked to every single person. Oh. But they were all full of shit. Yeah. Eventually, the Rosses ran out of money. So Christian Ross wrote a book about the kidnapping just to raise more money for the search yeah. for Charlie. When that money ran out, he did a reprint of the book and he went on the lecture circuit. Oh my goodness. He searched for his son until the day he died in 1897. And Sarah Ann searched for him until the day she died in 1912. Wow. On the 50th anniversary of the kidnapping in 1924, a bunch of newspapers did stories about the kidnapping because mm-hmm. it had just captivated the nation. They interviewed Walter, who was now a grown man. Yeah. And he said that to that day, he and his three sisters still received letters from men pretending to be their wow. long-lost brother. Then, 
1934, there was a break in the case. What? Yeah. Yeah. Brandy, shut up. Mm. Skeptical Brandy what? is no, no, skeptical no. No, no, again. No, 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 no. Listen to this, guys. I'm skeptical. Get ready to party. No. Charlie no. Ross was alive no. and well. No. Hey, where's he your joy? No. He was 69 years old. He was a carpenter, and he was living in Phoenix, Arizona. No, he wasn't. Boy, oh boy, did he have a story to tell. <laughs> he remembered the whole thing. After the kidnapping, he'd been hidden in a cave. Quit looking at me like that. This is all 100% true. He'd been, yes, he'd been hiding in a cave for forever. And eventually the man who adopted him said, guess what? Your name is not Gustav Blair. It's Charlie Ross. No. Nope. You were the kidnapped boy. No. But, um, the actual Ross children much like you two, were very skeptical. Yeah. And Walter, Sophia, Marion, and Anne were like, this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. But that made Charlie very upset because he was the real deal. 100%, no fooling, real deal. No. He was outraged. But no one was willing to acknowledge his true identity. So he looked at himself in the mirror and he said, Let's go to court. No. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I'm sorry. I know. For this what? Is go to court, like on yeah. based on what? He's gonna sue sue them for his identity. This dipshit went to court and entered a claim of kinship. From that point forward, he wanted to be known as Charles Brewster Ross. Fuck right off. It took. Five years, but eventually, in 1939, the Arizona court was like, sure, why not? You're Charles Brewster Ross. No. So, my understanding is a huge part of this was just the fact that the actual Ross children were like, we are ignoring this. This is bullshit. So, they didn't contest anything, Uh and I almost feel like because no one contested it, the Arizona court just... Wow. Went with it? Wouldn't it be great if DNA testing was a thing? I uh, You yes. could easily prove. Well, and I mean... I just did a DNA test, and it <laughs> turns out that guy is 100% a fucking liar. <laughs> I thought he was 100% that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so the actual Ross siblings were like, this is insane. Yeah, you've got some court order saying you're our brother, but we're not idiots. We know you are not our real brother. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to ignore the stupid court's decision because it's stupid. Yeah. Walter Ross told a newspaper that Gustav Blair is evidently just another one of the cranks who have been bothering us for the last 65 years. Wow. The idea that my brother is still alive is not only absurd, but the man's story seems unconvincing. I feel so awful for these siblings because it's yeah. clear their parents never gave up. It became yeah. their obsession. But I think the siblings were kind of like, yeah, he's dead. He's gone. At this point, journalists started asking Charlie, quote, quotation marks. Yeah. So what was it like to be kidnapped? So, you know, you're you're the real Charles Brewster Ross. Um, are you going to get some of the family fortune? 
And he was like, oh, <laughs> it hadn't even occurred to me to yeah, ask, okay. what? And they're like, well, you know, you're going to have to sue for it. They're not just going to give you the family money because so they don't said, acknowledge So he said, let's you. go to court a fucking again? Brandy, you seem just so irritated with this man who has been through so much. He, yeah. lived, he lived in a cave, no, Brandy. He, oh. <laughs> and then he had to go by Gustav. Gustav. <laughs> so they're asking him, are you going to sue? And he said, there won't be any need for that. Then, with his new 100% real identity, Charlie moved back to Germantown. He never lived in Germantown. He and his wife got remarried. Mm. I don't know why, but it was like part of his new identity. Mm, So they moved from Phoenix to Germantown, you know, Mm -hmm. back to his place of birth. And it was all pretty glamorous and exciting. Finally, after all these years, Charlie Ross was back home. Oh, what a tale. Soon Hollywood came calling. There was talk of film deals. The bigwigs in radio wanted to talk to him. Would he sell his incredible story? You no. bet your sweet ass he would. I don't want him to get any money. Well, here's the thing. Those Ross siblings, you know, Charlie had done some great work going all the way back home to see everybody. Uh, but they were not super welcoming. Yeah. Um, they treated him like some weirdo. Yeah. They did not invite him over for Christmas. In fact, they treated him like he was just some guy who was pretending to be their dead brother. Mm. They didn't cut him into the will. It was like they weren't even thinking about it. And at some point, all the talk about film deals and radio stuff all disappeared. I think a big thing was, in order for him to profit off of this, the other siblings would have to accept him in some way. So when they didn't, Everything went away. But Charlie wouldn't stand for it. So he got himself an attorney. Oh, no. And he went back to court. He'd heard that Sarah Ann Ross, Charlie's mom, had left behind, like, a $469,000 trust fund. And he wanted his share. Where's the adjusting for inflation? Oh, sorry. It was... uh, I was so excited I'd found her name. This was when I found her name. (laughs) (laughs) Forgive me, Brandy. It's a lot of money. I'm on it. You got it? Okay. I think that... Well, but you don't know what year this happened. I'll just do 1939. No, this was more like the 40s, I think. 43? 39. 39, you're right. $8.6 million. Whoa! Steep! Not too bad. So, Charlie's attorney publicly announced that they were planning to file a federal court action to get his portion of the money. His attorney said, Before taking any further steps to prove his claim, we are waiting for some move by the Ross family. Okay. Which is code for, we don't have a claim. We know we don't have a claim. But we're hoping that some dumbass just gives us money. But uh, the Ross family didn't do shit. They called their bluff. And, uh... Gustav didn't end up filing his claim, of Mm -hmm. course. Eventually, he moved back to Phoenix, and he died at the age of 73 from the flu. Mm. So, there you go. The kidnapping of Charlie Ross wasn't America's first, but it was the first one that received this kind of widespread attention. 
And it is believed to be the reason why we warn children not to take candy from strangers. Oh, that was crazy. I loved that. Wasn't that nuts? Yes. I feel so sorry for that family. Oh, Walter. And I'm, but I'm just so, I'm so curious about what happened to him. Yeah. And why leave, like, why leave one kid behind? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they felt like we're not going to get more money for two we're overwhelmed? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Whew. It was strange. Yeah. I liked this old-timey theme. I did, too. I know we do old-timey cases a lot on here, but... They're fun. They are. They're so fun. Okay, should we get into Supreme Court yes. inductions? We've got Supreme Court inductions to do. And We've this got time, a new topic. That's right. We asked people to give us their favorite movie snack. Oh, yeah. Um, So for this week's inductions, I would like you to um, just remain seated. Kind of like lean back a little bit in your seat. Get like real relaxed. Real relaxed. Julie. Chocolate covered pretzels, which seem to only come in incredibly loud, (laughs) crinkly bags. Sorry, fellow moviegoers. Heather. Bunch of crunch or cookie dough bites. The Birches. A large popcorn with a bag of M&M's mixed in. Oh, Oh, that sounds delicious. Katie L. Crisps. That's British for chips. Salt and black pepper flavored. Lena Bean. Lay's potato chips with red hot hot sauce with a side of sour cream. How the fuck are you eating that in a movie, Lena Bean? (laughs) (laughs) She comes in with a tray. (laughs) Emily Louise. Milk Duds, Popcorn, and a Large Coke. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Supreme Court. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. Uh, Welcome to the Supreme Court. If you are wondering how to uh, join the Supreme Court, head on over to patreon.com slash LGTC podcast. While you've got your computer out, (laughs) why don't you find us on social media? We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. um, We're on Reddit. Did I already say that? And then uh, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And then... You know, join us next week. When we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the New York Herald, the St. Albans Advertiser, and ushistory.org. And I got my info from an article by Denise No for the Crime Library, Wikipedia, and the Smithsonian. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. <laughs> <laughs>